Chapter One of Ten Days That Shook the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ten Days That Shook the World by John Reed. Chapter One Background. Toward the end of September, nineteen seventeen an alien professor of sociology visiting russia came to see me in petrograd he had been informed by businessmen and intellectuals that the revolution was slowing down the professor wrote an article about it and then travelled around the country visiting factory towns and peasant communities where to his astonishment the revolution seemed to be speeding up among the wage earners and the land-working people it was common to hear talk of all land to the peasants all factories to the workers if the professor had visited the front he would have heard the whole army talking peace the professor was puzzled but he need not have been both observations were correct the property-owning classes were becoming more conservative the masses of the people more radical there was a feeling among businessmen and the intelligentsia generally that the revolution had gone quite far enough and lasted too long that things should settle down this sentiment was shared by the dominant moderate socialist groups the oborontsi see appendix one section one mensheviki and socialist revolutionaries who supported the provisional government of kerensky on October 14th, the official organ of the moderate socialists said, quote, The drama of revolution has two acts, the destruction of the old regime and the creation of the new one. The first act has lasted long enough. Now it is time to go on to the second and to play it as rapidly as possible. As a great revolutionist put it, Let us hasten, friends, to terminate the revolution. He who makes it last too long will not gather the fruits. End quote. Among the worker, soldier, and peasant masses, however, there was a stubborn feeling that the first act was not yet played out. On the front, the army committees were always running foul of officers who could not get used to treating their men like human beings. In the rear, the land committees elected by the peasants were being jailed for trying to carry out government regulations concerning the land. And the workmen, see Appendix 1, Section 2, in the factories were fighting blacklists and lockouts nay furthermore returning political exiles were being excluded from the country as undesirable citizens and in some cases men who returned from abroad to their villages were prosecuted and imprisoned for revolutionary acts committed in nineteen o five to the multiform discontent of the people the moderate socialists had one answer wait for the constituent assembly which is to meet in december but the masses were not satisfied with that the constituent assembly was all well and good but there were certain definite things for which the russian revolution had been made and for which the revolutionary martyrs rotted in their stark brotherhood grave on mars field that must be achieved constituent assembly or no constituent assembly peace land and workers control of industry the constituent assembly had been postponed and postponed would probably be postponed again until the people were calm enough perhaps to calm their demands at any rate here were eight months of the revolution gone and little enough to show for it 
Meanwhile, the soldiers began to solve the peace question by simply deserting, the peasants burned manor-houses and took over the great estates, the workers sabotaged and struck. Of course, as was natural, the manufacturers, landowners, and army officers exerted all their influence against any democratic compromise. The policy of the provincial government alternated between ineffective reforms and stern repressive measures. An edict from the socialist minister of labor ordered all the workers' committees thenceforth to meet only after working hours. Among the troops at the front, agitators of opposition political parties were arrested, radical newspapers closed down, and capital punishment applied to revolutionary propagandists. Attempts were made to disarm the Red Guard. Cossacks were sent to keep order in the provinces. These measures were supported by the moderate socialists and their leaders in the ministry, who considered it necessary to cooperate with the propertied classes. The people rapidly deserted them and went over to the Bolsheviki, who stood for peace, land, and workers' control of industry, and a government of the working class. In September 1917, matters reached a crisis. Against the overwhelming sentiment of the country, Kerensky and the moderate socialists succeeded in establishing a government of coalition with the propertied classes, and as a result, the Mensheviki and socialist revolutionaries lost the confidence of the people forever. An article in Rabachi Put, Workers' Way, about the middle of October, entitled the socialist ministers, expressed the feeling of the masses of the people against the moderate socialists. Here is a list of their services. See Appendix 1, Section 3. Quote, Suratelli, disarmed the workmen with the assistance of General Palatsev, checkmated the revolutionary soldiers, and approved of capital punishment in the army. Skobolev, commenced by trying to tax the capitalists 100% of their profits, and finished by an attempt to dissolve the workers' committees in the shops and factories. Avskentiev put several hundred peasants in prison, members of the land committees, and suppressed dozens of workers' and soldiers' newspapers. Chernov signed the Imperial Manifest ordering the dissolution of the Finnish Diet. Savinkov concluded an open alliance with General Kornilov. If this savior of the country was not able to betray Petrograd, it was due to reasons over which he had no control. Zarudny, with the sanction of Aleksinsky and Kerensky, put some of the best workers of the revolution, soldiers and sailors, in prison. Nikitin, acted as a vulgar policeman against the railway workers. Kerensky, it is better not to say anything about him. The list of his services is too long. End quote. A Congress of the Delegates of the Baltic Fleet, at Helsingfors, passed a resolution which began as follows. We demand the immediate removal from the ranks of the provisional government of the socialist, the political adventurer, Kerensky, as one who is scandalizing and ruining the great revolution, and with it the revolutionary masses, by his shameless political blackmail on behalf of the bourgeoisie. The direct result of all of this was the rise of the Bolsheviki. Since March 1917, when the roaring torrents of workmen and soldiers beating upon the Tauride Palace compelled the reluctant Imperial Duma to assume the supreme power in Russia, 
it was the masses of the people, workers, soldiers, and peasants, who forced every change in the course of the revolution. They hurled the Milyukov ministry down. It was their Soviet which proclaimed to the world the Russian peace terms, quote, no annexations, no indemnities, and the right of self-determination of peoples, end quote. And again, in July, it was the spontaneous rising of the unorganized proletariat which once more stormed the Tauride Palace to demand that the Soviets take over the government of Russia. The Bolsheviki, then a small political sect, put themselves at the head of the movement. As a result of the disastrous failure of the rising, public opinion turned against them, and their leaderless hordes slunk back into the Vyborg Quarter, which is Petrograd's Saint Antoine. Then followed a savage hunt of the Bolsheviki. Hundreds were imprisoned, among them Trotsky, Madame Kolontai, and Kamenev. Lenin and Zinoviev went into hiding, fugitives from justice. The Bolshevik papers were suppressed. Provocators and reactionaries raised the cry that the Bolsheviki were German agents, until people all over the world believed it. But the provisional government found itself unable to substantiate its accusations. The documents proving pro-German conspiracy were discovered to be forgeries, footnote, part of the famous Cisan documents, and footnote. And one by one the Bolsheviki were released from prison without trial, on nominal or no bail, until only six remained. The impotence and indecision of the ever-changing provisional government was an argument nobody could refute. The Bolsheviki raised again the slogan so dear to the masses, all power to the Soviets. And they were not merely self-seeking, for at that time the majority of the Soviets was moderate socialist, their bitter enemy. But more potent still, they took the crude, simple desires of the workers, soldiers, and peasants, and from them built their immediate program. And so, while the Oberonsi, Mensheviki, and socialist revolutionaries involved themselves in compromise with the bourgeoisie, the Bolsheviki rapidly captured the Russian masses. In July, they were hunted and despised. By September, the metropolitan workmen, the sailors of the Baltic fleet, and the soldiers had been won almost entirely to their cause. The September municipal elections in the large cities, see Appendix 1, Section 4, were significant. Only 18% of the returns were Menshevik and socialist revolutionary, against more than 70% in June. There remains a phenomenon which puzzled foreign observers, the fact that the central executive committees of the Soviets, the Central Army and the Fleet Committees, and the central committees of some of the unions, notably the post and telegraph workers and the railway workers, opposed the Bolsheviki with the utmost violence. These central committees had all been elected in the middle of the summer, or even before, when the Mensheviki and socialist revolutionaries had an enormous following, and they delayed or prevented any new elections. Thus, according to the constitution of the Soviets of Workers and Soldiers' Deputies, the All-Russian Congress should have been called in September, but the Seika would not call the meeting, on the ground that the Constituent Assembly was only two months away, at which time, they hinted, the Soviets would abdicate. Meanwhile, one by one, the Bolsheviki were winning in the local Soviets all over the country, in the Union branches and the ranks of the soldiers and sailors. 
the peasant Soviets remained still conservative, because in the sluggish rural districts political consciousness developed slowly, and the Socialist Revolutionary Party had been for a generation the party which had agitated among the peasants. But even among the peasants a revolutionary wing was forming. It showed itself clearly in October, when the left wing of the Socialist Revolutionaries split off and formed a new political faction, the Left Socialist Revolutionaries. At the same time, there were signs everywhere that the forces of reaction were gaining confidence. See Appendix 1, Section 5. At the Troitsky Farce Theatre in Petrograd, for example, a burlesque called Sins of the Tsar was interrupted by a group of monarchists, who threatened to lynch the actors for insulting the emperor. Certain newspapers began to sigh for a Russian Napoleon. It was the usual thing among bourgeois intelligentsia to refer to the Soviets of workers' deputies, Rabatchik Deputatov, as Sabatchik Deputatov, dogs' deputies. On October 15th I had a conversation with a great Russian capitalist, Stepan Georgievich Lianazov, known as the Russian Rockefeller, a cadet by political faith. Revolution, he said, is sickness. Sooner or later the foreign powers must intervene here, as one would intervene to cure a sick child and teach it how to walk. Of course it would be more or less improper, but the nations must realize the danger of Bolshevism in their own countries. Such contagious ideas as protolarian dictatorship and world social revolution— there is a chance that this intervention may not be necessary. Transportation is demoralized, the factories are closing down, and the Germans are advancing. Starvation and defeat may bring the Russian people to their senses. Mr. Lianazov was emphatic in his opinion that whatever happened, it would be impossible for merchants and manufacturers to permit the existence of the workers' shop committees or to allow the workers any share in the management of industry. Quote, As for the Bolsheviki, they will be done away with by one of two methods. The government can evacuate Petrograd, then a state of siege declared, and the military commander of the district can deal with these gentlemen without legal formalities. Or if, for example, the Constituent Assembly manifests any utopian tendencies, it can be dispersed by force of arms. End quote. Winter was coming on, the terrible Russian winter. I heard businessmen speak of it so, quote, Winter was always Russia's best friend. Perhaps now it will rid us of revolution, end quote. On the freezing front, miserable armies continued to starve and die without enthusiasm. The railways were breaking down, food lessening, factories closing. The desperate masses cried out that the bourgeoisie was sabotaging the life of the people, causing defeat on the front. Riga had been surrendered just after General Kornilov said publicly, quote, Must we pay with Riga the price of bringing the country to a sense of its duty? End quote. Footnote. See Kornilov to Brest-Litvask by John Reed. Bonnie and Liverwright, New York, 1919. End footnote. To Americans it is incredible that the class war should develop to such a pitch but I have personally met officers on the northern front who frankly preferred military disaster to cooperation with the soldiers' committees. 
the secretary of the Petrograd branch of the cadet party, told me that the breakdown of the country's economic life was part of a campaign to discredit the revolution. An allied diplomat, whose name I promise not to mention, confirmed this from his own knowledge. I know of certain coal mines near Kharkov which were fired and flooded by their owners, of textile factories at Moscow whose engineers put the machinery out of order when they left, of railroad officials caught by the workers in the act of crippling locomotives. A large section of the propertied classes preferred the Germans to the revolution, even to the provisional government, and didn't hesitate to say so. In the Russian household where I lived, the subject of conversation at the dinner-table was almost invariably the coming of the Germans, bringing law and order. One evening I spent at the house of a Moscow merchant. During tea we asked the eleven people at the table whether they preferred Wilhelm or the Bolsheviki. The vote was ten to one for Wilhelm. The speculators took advantage of the universal disorganization to pile up fortunes, and to spend them in fantastic revelry or the corruption of government officials. Foodstuffs and fuel were hoarded, or secretly sent out of the country to Sweden. In the first four months of the revolution, for example, the reserve food supplies were almost openly looted from the great municipal warehouses of Petrograd, until the two years' provision of grain had fallen to less than enough to feed the city for one month. According to the official report of the last Minister of Supplies in the Provisional Government, coffee was bought wholesale in Vladivostok for two roubles a pound, and the consumer in Petrograd paid thirteen. In all the stores of the large cities were tons of food and clothing, but only the rich could buy them. In a provincial town I knew a merchant family turned speculator, Mara Dior, bandit, ghoul, the Russians call it. The three sons had bribed their way out of military service. One gambled in foodstuffs, another sold illegal gold from the Lena mines to mysterious parties in Finland. The third owned a controlling interest in a chocolate factory, which supplied the local cooperative societies, on condition that the cooperatives furnished him everything he needed. And so, while the masses of the people got a quarter pound of black bread on their bread cards, he had an abundance of white bread, sugar, tea, candy, cake, and butter. Yet when the soldiers at the front could no longer fight from cold, hunger, and exhaustion, how indignantly did this family scream, cowards! How ashamed they were to be Russians! When finally the Bolsheviki found and requisitioned vast hoarded stores of provisions, what robbers they were! Beneath all this external rottenness, moved the old-time dark forces, unchanged since the fall of Nicholas II, secret still and very active. The agents of the notorious Okhrana still functioned, for and against the Tsar, for and against Kerensky, whatever would pay. In the darkness, underground organizations of all sorts, such as the Black Hundreds, were busy attempting to restore reaction in some form or other. In this atmosphere of corruption, of monstrous half-truths, one clear note sounded day after day, the deepening chorus of the Bolsheviki, all power to the Soviets, all power to the direct representatives of millions on millions of common workers, soldiers, and peasants, land, bread, an end to the senseless war, an end to secret diplomacy, speculation, treachery, 
the revolution is in danger, and with it the cause of the people all over the world. The struggle between the proletariat and the middle class, between the Soviets and the government, which had begun in the first March days, was about to culminate. Having at one bound leaped from the Middle Ages into the twentieth century, Russia showed the startled world two systems of revolution, the political and the social, in mortal combat. What a revelation of the vitality of the Russian Revolution after all these months of starvation and disillusionment! The bourgeoisie should have better known its Russia. Not for a long time in Russia will the sickness of revolution have run its course. Looking back, Russia before the November insurrection seems of another age, almost incredibly conservative. So quickly did we adapt ourselves to the newer, swifter life. Just as Russian politics swung bodily to the left until the cadets were outlawed as enemies of the people, Kerensky became a counter-revolutionist, the middle socialist leaders, Zuratelli, Dan, Lieber, Gotz, and Avskentiev, were too reactionary for their following, and men like Viktor Chernov, and even Maxim Gorky, belonged to the right wing. About the middle of December, 1917, a group of socialist revolutionary leaders paid a private visit to Sir George Buchanan, the British ambassador, and implored him not to mention the fact that they had been there, because they were, quote, considered too far right, end quote. And to think, said Sir George, one year ago my government instructed me not to receive Milyukov because he was so dangerously left. September and October are the worst months of the Russian year, especially the Petrograd year. Under dull gray skies, in the shortening days, the rain fell drenching, incessant. The mud underfoot was deep, slippery, and clinging, tracked everywhere by heavy boots, and worse than usual because of the complete breakdown of the municipal administration. Bitter damp winds rushed in from the Gulf of Finland, and the chill fog rolled through the streets. At night, for motives of economy as well as fear of zeppelins, the street lights were few and far between. In private dwellings and apartment houses, the electricity was turned on from six o'clock until midnight, with candles forty cents apiece, and little kerosene to be had. It was dark from three in the afternoon to ten in the morning. Robberies and housebreakings increased. In apartment houses, the men took turns at all-night guard duty, armed with loaded rifles. This was under the provisional government. Week by week, food became scarcer. The daily allowance of bread fell from a pound and a half to a pound, then three quarters, half, and a quarter pound. Toward the end, there was a week without any bread at all. Sugar one was entitled to at the rate of two pounds a month, if one could get it at all, which was seldom. A bar of chocolate or a pound of tasteless candy cost anywhere from seven to ten rubles, at least a dollar. There was milk for about half the babies in the city. Most hotels and private houses never saw it for months. In the fruit season, apples and pears sold for a little less than a rouble apiece on the street corner. For milk and bread and sugar and tobacco, one had to stand in queue long hours in the chill rain. Coming home from an all-night meeting, I have seen the kvost, tail, beginning to form before dawn, mostly women, some with babies in their arms. 
Carlyle, in his French Revolution, has described the French people as distinguished above all others by their faculty of standing in queue. Russia had accustomed herself to the practice, begun in the reign of Nicholas the Blessed as long ago as 1915, and from then continued intermittently until the summer of 1917, when it settled down as the regular order of things. Think of the poorly clad people standing on the iron-white streets of Petrograd whole days in the Russian winter. I have listened in the bread-lines, hearing the bitter acrid note of discontent which from time to time burst up through the miraculous good-nature of the Russian crowd. Of course all the theatres were going every night, including Sundays. Karsavina appeared in a new ballet at the Marinsky, all dance-loving Russia coming to see her. Shalyapin was singing. At the Alexandrinsky they were reviving Meyerhold's production of Tolstoy's Death of Ivan the Terrible. And at that performance I remember noticing a student of the Imperial School of Pages, in his dress uniform, who stood up correctly between the acts and faced the empty imperial box with its eagles all erased. The Krivoi Zerkalo staged a sumptuous version of Schnitzler's Ragian. Although the Hermitage and other picture galleries had been evacuated to Moscow, there were weekly exhibitions of paintings. Hordes of the female intelligentsia went to hear lectures on art, literature, and the easy philosophies. It was a particularly active season for theosophists. And the Salvation Army, admitted to Russia for the first time in history, plastered the walls with announcements of gospel meetings, which amused and astonished Russian audiences. As in all such times, the petty conventional life of the city went on, ignoring the revolution as much as possible. The poets made verses, but not about the revolution. The realistic painters painted scenes from medieval Russian history, anything but the revolution. Young ladies from the provinces came up to the capital to learn French and cultivate their voices, and the gay young beautiful officers wore their gold-trimmed crimson bashliki and their elaborate Caucasian swords around the hotel lobbies. The ladies of the minor bureaucratic set took tea with each other in the afternoon, carrying each her little gold or silver or jeweled sugar-box, and half a loaf of bread in her muff, and wished that the Tsar were back, or that the Germans would come, or anything that would solve the servant problem. The daughter of a friend of mine came home one afternoon in hysterics because the woman streetcar conductor had called her comrade. All around them Great Russia was in travail, bearing a new world. The servants one used to treat like animals and pay next to nothing were getting independent. A pair of shoes cost more than a hundred rubles, and as wages averaged about thirty-five rubles a month, the servants refused to stand in queue and wear out their shoes but more than that. In New Russia, every man and woman could vote. There were working-class newspapers saying new and startling things. There were the Soviets, and there were the unions. The Izvachchiki, cab-drivers, had a union. They were also represented in the Petrograd Soviet. The waiters and hotel servants were organized and refused tips. On the walls of restaurants they put up signs which read, no tips taken here, or, just because a man has to make a living waiting on table is no reason to insult him by offering him a tip. 
At the front, the soldiers fought out their fight with the officers, and learned self-government through their committees. In the factories, whose unique Russian organizations, the factory shop committees, gained experience and strength and a realization of their historical mission by combat with the old order. All Russia was learning to read, and reading, politics, economics, history, because the people wanted to know. In every city, in most towns, along the front, each political faction had its newspaper, sometimes several. Hundreds of thousands of pamphlets were distributed by thousands of organizations, and poured into the armies, the villages, the factories, the streets. The thirst for education, so long thwarted, burst with the revolution into a frenzy of expression. From Smolny Institute alone, the first six months, went out every day tons, carloads, trainloads of literature, saturating the land. Russia absorbed reading matter like hot sand drinks water, insatiable. And it was not fables, falsified history, diluted religion, and the cheap fiction that corrupts, but social and economic theories, philosophy, the works of Tolstoy, Gogol, and Gorky. Then the talk, beside which Carlyle's flood of French speech was a mere trickle. Lectures, debates, speeches, in theatres, circuses, schoolhouses, clubs, Soviet meeting-rooms, union headquarters, barracks. Meetings in the trenches at the front, in village squares, factories. What a marvellous sight to see Pudolowski Zavod, the Pudolov factory, pour out its forty thousand to listen to social democrats, socialist revolutionaries, anarchists, anybody, whatever they wanted to say as long as they would talk. For months in Petrograd and all over Russia, every street corner was a public tribune. In railway trains, street cars, always the spurting up of impromptu debate everywhere. And the all-Russian conferences and congresses, drawing together the men of two continents, conventions of Soviets, of cooperatives, zemstvos, nationalities, priests, peasants, political parties, the Democratic Conference, the Moscow Conference, the Council of the Russian Republic. There were always three or four conventions going on in Petrograd. At every meeting, attempts to limit the time of speakers voted down, and every man free to express the thought that was in him. We came down to the front of the Twelfth Army, back of Riga, where gaunt and bootless men sickened in the mud of desperate trenches, and when they saw us they started up, with their pinched faces and the flesh showing blue through their torn clothing, demanding eagerly, Did you bring anything to read? What though the outward and visible signs of change were many, what though the statue of Catherine the Great before the Alexandrinsky Theatre bore a little red flag in its hand, and others, somewhat faded, floated from all public buildings, and the imperial monograms and eagles were either torn down or covered up, and in the place of the fierce Gora de city police, a mild-mannered and unarmed citizen militia patrolled the streets, still there were many quaint anachronisms. For example, Peter the Great's Tabel Oregnov, Table of Ranks, which he riveted upon Russia with an iron hand, still held sway. Almost everybody from the schoolboy up wore his prescribed uniform, with the insignia of the emperor on button and shoulder-strap. Along about five o'clock in the afternoon, the streets were full of subdued old gentlemen in uniform, with portfolios, 
going home from work in the huge barrack-like ministries or government institutions, calculating perhaps how great a mortality among their superiors would advance them to the coveted chin, rank, of collegiate assessor, or privy counsellor, with the prospect of retirement on a comfortable pension, and possibly the cross of St. Anne. There is the story of Senator Solokoff, who in full tide of revolution came to a meeting of the Senate one day in civilian clothes, and was not admitted because he did not wear the prescribed livery of the Tsar's service. It was against this background of a whole nation in ferment and disintegration that the pageant of the rising of the Russian masses unrolled. End of chapter 1